One night when my son was a little tot, just a little guy, Nick was pushing his limits. Nick was testing his father's patience, there's no doubt about it, when finally I had to bring out the wooden spoon, the feared wooden spoon. In fact, I was just about to apply the board of education to the seat of learning when suddenly my teary-eyed little guy, he looks up at me and with a little quiver in his voice, he says, Dad, after you spanked me, Will you give me a great big hug? What a heart-melting, anger-ending, daddy-disarming comment for a child to make. And of course, I said, sure, Nick, I'll give you a hug. Then guess what I did? I spanked him just like I promised. I wasn't about to let him charm his way out of some needed correction. I love my kids. And I showed them that love every single day. But part of that love was disciplining them when needed. The spankings were proof of my love. And this was true in God's dealings with His people, Israel. God employed both warm hugs and wooden spoons, both compassion and correction. One was never without the other. When God administered judgment, it didn't mean His love had vanished. Likewise, when God promised a warm hug, He wasn't throwing away His wooden spoon. God's love and God's discipline were synonymous. In chapters 4 through 10 of Hosea, though God's love is certainly present, the dominant theme is His judgment. But now in chapter 11, the tone changes. Though God's judgment is still on the horizon, He speaks more of His love. God expresses His divine desire to restore the Jews once their judgment is completed. God provides His kids a warm hug after the wooden spoon. Chapter 11 begins, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God adopted Israel out of Egypt. They went from being slaves to being sons. And you know the same can be said for you and I? God doesn't just forgive us and cleanse us just to send us on our way. He frees us from the slavery of sin to make us part of His family. This is the joyous thing. God's calling is always two-sided. God calls us out to call us in, out of this world, but into His forever family. It sent a marvelous message to the Hebrews when Hosea here implied that God was their father and they were His son. But the New Testament takes it even further. Jesus took this same idiom to the next step. In the Old Testament, the term was applied to the entire nation, never to the individual. This is why the Jews in the first century considered it irreverent, even blasphemous, to hear Jesus refer to God as my Father. That assumed a closer intimacy with God than anyone who had ever lived before, anyone else had ever enjoyed. But what really angered the Jews was when Jesus taught His followers that they too could refer to God in the same kind of intimate way, our Father. You remember His words to His disciples, when you pray, say to your Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In John 20 verse 17, after His resurrection, Jesus told them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Jesus gave to us the same access to God that He possessed. 
It's very interesting and it's somewhat odd that the New Testament quotes verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11 as a prophecy of Joseph and Mary and Jesus' return from Egypt. You remember when King Herod heard that a rival king had been born in Bethlehem. He tried to kill the babies there. Warned in a dream, Joseph moved to Egypt. But upon Herod's death, God called Joseph to return and settle in Nazareth. Matthew 2, verse 14 and 15 reads, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And we know who that prophet was. It was Hosea saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. He quotes verse 1 of chapter 11. The context here in Hosea, it's speaking of the nation, while Matthew's quote applies to Jesus himself. Apparently, Matthew saw a picture of the Messiah in the nation Israel. There are places in the Old Testament where Israel was a type of the Messiah. Remember, Messiah came to identify with his people Israel. He came to share in their plight and to bring them God's deliverance. Thus, here Jesus and Israel were called out of Egypt. And then we're told in verse 2, As they called them, so they went from them, they sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. Right after the call, there was a fall. No sooner had the Hebrews entered the promised land that they abandoned the true God. For empty idols, these Baals were the local Canaanite idols, their gods. This clearly grieved the father's heart. He says, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. God was like a doting dad. You've all seen this type of father. This is the father who's preoccupied with his kids. The child's first rollover, his first tooth, his first spoonful of cereal. All are occurrences of enormous, monumental importance. They rival world events. They have to be documented on video. You've seen these kinds of dads. And one of the developmental landmarks this dad relishes most is that special moment when that little guy takes his very first step on his own. Months earlier, he started the process, holding the kid up under his arms, tottering him back and forth, pretending he's walking, mimicking a walking motion as he goes. He's supposedly teaching his son how to walk. Doesn't know he'll learn to walk eventually anyway. But this was like God. He loved Ephraim. He says, I was there when you learned to walk. I taught you to walk. Ephraim was a nickname of the northern tribes of Israel. And as God loves His children, He's there for us at every step, at every turn. He loves all His children, including you and me. In fact, our God is one of those fathers who's preoccupied with His kids. Think of it. God can't keep His eyes off you. Our Father lights up at all our firsts. The first time we open our Bible to really read it for ourselves. The first time we dare to share our faith. The first time we attempt to serve in the church. God rejoices. He treasures that video. What causes heaven to applaud isn't the signing of peace treaties among nations or victories of some sports team. Heaven rejoices when a child of God takes his first step of obedience. Takes his first step of faith. 
God wants to teach His kids to walk. He's that kind of dad. To walk by faith, to walk in holiness, to walk in the Spirit. And then verse 4 describes God's attempts to teach Ephraim to walk. He says, I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. In an agrarian society, everyone understood this picture. Oxen were normally harnessed in pairs. They were yoked together for work. They were steered by the bit and the bridle. And likewise, God has authority over His people. You know, a mark of being a follower of Jesus, it's someone who has accepted the bit. Have you accepted the bit? Do you allow the master to steer the direction of your life? You know, rebellion is to spit out the bit or to reject God's guidance. Here Hosea paints a picture of God's gentleness and His love. Rather than a stern taskmaster, He's a tender trainer. Instead of driving and forcing, He leads and He feeds. He delights in taking off the yoke and making their way easier. He takes off the heavy burdens. He relieves, not frazzles. He gives His people rest, not more stress. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sometimes we get under heavy burdens. We think God wants us to do this and that and this and that. In reality, if you're under a heavy burden tonight, that burden's probably not placed upon, probably not Jesus' burden. It's probably not what He's put on you. It's probably what you've put on yourself or what other people have put on you. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Lord's yoke never chokes. He doesn't yank it. He doesn't jerk us around. He's a loving leader. His reins, the reins that He holds are bands of love. They're gentle cords. God is able to tame our will without breaking our spirit. He patiently draws us in and He persuades us of His ways. Verse 5, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refused to repent. God wanted to heal His people, but rather than trust in Him, they put their faith in neighboring nations. They flip-flop back and forth between Egypt and Assyria, making alliances with both. Eventually, the Assyrians became their ruler, their taskmasters. He says, And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Israel was bent on backsliding. Beware of a reverse momentum, of a spiritual backdraft, of an undertow. You know, this world has a strong undertow. Don't get caught in the current of this world that flows downstream from God. Every Christian faces the dangers of drifting. Realize living the Christian life is like climbing a sliding board in your socks. You're moving upwards or you're sliding backwards, one or the other, but you're not standing still, that's for sure. As long as you're moving forward, you're fine. But the moment you stop, whoo, sliding back. 
Ever been on a float out in the ocean and just kind of dozed off? When you wake up, you find yourself in deep, deep water. The same can happen in the Christian life. The tides of compromise take the aimless drifter further and further from Christ until they wake up in big trouble. Years ago, Bible teacher Dan DeHaan, he identified the ten steps to drifting. He says it starts with laziness in your Christian life. Then there's boredom or a lack of purpose. It sets in. It's followed by a restlessness, then a self-pity, then a pride, then a murmuring, then an impurity, then a hatred of correction, then a bitterness and resentment. Finally, a hard heart. Here's the big question tonight. How far have you drifted from the Lord? Are you bent on backsliding? It's time to head back to Jesus as fast as possible. And then Hosea continues. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt Him. They pray, but there's no praise. There's no exaltation. The people of Israel have lost their passion for God. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zobaim? Adma and Zobaim were two of the five cities in the Dead Sea Basin destroyed in God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And here God's judgment is coming upon Israel. He's going to discipline His people. But He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to drop the hammer. He doesn't relish bringing judgment. Listen to the pain of God's heart. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. These are God's words. My heart churns within me. Hosea 11 verse 8 is to me one of the most stirring verses in all of the Bible. Israel is bent on backsliding and needs to be judged. Something has to be done. But the mere thought of letting harm come to his people churns up God's heart. The Almighty God says, my heart churns within me. His love makes him vulnerable to our choices. Isn't that amazing? Even when God judges his people, don't ever think he doesn't love them. In the midst of his judgments, here God gets emotional. One author says of this verse, a cry of love escapes. Don't think of God as a, of a, of a don't think of God as a vindictive judge. You'll, you'll get him wrong. He's like Hosea. He's a jilted lover. He's hoping to renew his marriage to a rebellious bride, not end it. God is like a heart-torn parent, resorting to some tough love in his attempts to restore a wayward child. He's like that patient father waiting on the prodigal son to return home. Every time my dad spanked me, and that was quite often, he would first say, Sandy, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I always thought, sure, easy for you to say, hey, I never believed my dad until I became a dad. I hated disciplining my kids. I hope Kathy did it and didn't leave it for me when I got home. My heart churned. My sympathy stirred. I loved my kids. I never wanted to see them suffer. 
And this is how God feels when he has to spank us. He hates it, but he does it because he loves us. Be glad God doesn't wimp out on us like a lot of parents do with their kids. God always does what's best for us, even when it's hard on Him. Those of us who are parents of little ones should certainly follow His cues. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. God is going to destroy Ephraim. Judgment is coming. He's not changing his mind, but he will not destroy her again, he says. Ephraim will one day be restored. And here the prophet Hosea is looking even to the end of time. He says, they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his sons shall come trembling from the west. Note the Lord will roar like a lion. And when is the Lord ever referred to in the scriptures as a lion? Messiah, our Lord Jesus, is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It seems that when Jesus returns, millions of Jews from the West, he says, many no doubt from America, will return to Israel and worship their Messiah, their roaring lion. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. The northern kingdom had been guilty of lying to God, of making hollow promises, promising Him one thing and not delivering. You know, they were like the Eskimo boy who said to his sweetheart, I would push my dog team 100 miles through ice and snow just to see you today. The girl replied, Ah, That's a lot of mush. That's a lot of mush. Ephraim's promises were just as hollow. They were nothing but mush. They told lies. Whereas Judah still walked with God, he says. At the time of the fall of Samaria in the north, Hezekiah was the king of Judah. Isaiah was the prophet. They led the southern kingdom in repentance and revival. And though hope for Israel was over, Judah would be spared the Assyrian invasion. Chapter 12 tells us, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Again, his problem was lies, falsehoods. Blistering winds, sandstorms blow across the Arabian deserts. Hosea compares it to the coming judgment, to the Assyrians who will come. He's also, he says, also they make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried to Egypt. Again, Israel is making covenants with both Assyria and with Egypt, trying to, trying to put peace treaties, trying to hedge their bets, have a relationship with both, depending on who might prevail. Maybe they'll be able to navigate their own peace. They sought their peace with their avowed enemies. He says, the Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his deeds, he will recompense him. And in the next few verses, verses 2 through 6, God judges Jacob and his shading dealings with his brother Esau. These verses applied to Jacob of old, but also to Israel of Hosea's day. Now he says, 
he took his brother by the heel in the womb. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau. The animosity between the two brothers began before they were even born. Jacob trying to slide ahead and get the firstborn status from his brother. And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. Although the angel crippled his hip, if you remember. He wept and he sought favor from him. You remember Jacob was afraid of Esau. He thought that his brother was out to kill him, especially after he had finagled the birthright from Esau. When Jacob returned to the land of his fathers, he encountered a man just east of the Jordan River. He thought it was Esau. He was fighting for his life that night. But in the midst of the struggle, he realized that his adversary wasn't Esau at all, but it was the angel of the Lord. And when Jacob realized that he was fighting with God, he changed his posture. Rather than resist, he hung on with all his might, and he cried out for a blessing, which God granted. And you know, this might be your story. All your life, you've struggled, you've wrestled, circumstances get you down. You fought with your boss, you fought with your wife, you fought with your kids. Has it ever dawned on you that you might be fighting with God? Could it be that you need to surrender to His will? Despite what you might have thought, God is not your adversary. He's your friend. God wants to bless you. When we think of Jacob, a special place always comes to mind. God met Jacob twice in a place called Bethel. Once, before he left the promised land, God showed him a ladder ascending to heaven and angels coming up and down that ladder. That all happened at Bethel. And when he returned to the land, when God renewed the covenant, that he had made with Abraham, he did so with Jacob, again, at this place called Bethel. And yet the Hebrews in Hosea's day didn't remember the lessons that God had taught Jacob. Hosea writes, He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us, that is, the Lord of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. Notice God left his people, not an image like the pagan gods, but a memorable name. See, God's name is what reflects His nature. The Lord, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh, means I am that I am. Yahweh is the great I am. God is the self-existent one. He needs nothing from anybody. God exists and reigns solely by Himself. He is the great I am. I'm the great may be. Or I wish. <laughs> God is the great I am. He needs nothing from no one. Verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. Hosea has referred to three key events from the life of Jacob. And the prophet applies them now to the nation as a whole. In a sense, when he was born and when he died... And when he was born again, the word Jacob means heel catcher. He had just mentioned his origins. He tried to grab his heel. He tried to beat him out of the womb. This was the name given to Jacob at birth, the heel catcher. He came out of the womb holding his twin brother Esau by the heel. The animosity between them was there from in utero, before their beginnings. From the day he was born, Jacob wanted to be first. 
He wasn't content playing second fiddle. He wanted his father's birthright, even if it took deception to get it. You remember he put hair, fur on his arms, pretending to be his hairy brother Esau. After swindling Esau, Jacob fled to Haran where he worked for a man named Laban for 20 years and for two wives. And yet Laban was a bigger cheat than Jacob. Remember the horror story? The morning after his wedding night, Jacob awoke. He rolled over to kiss his bride thinking it was Rachel, the beautiful Rachel. And instead he screamed, Mamma mia, it's Leah! She was the ugly one. Jacob learned what it was like to be swindled, not just the swindler. So when he decided to return home, he was afraid. He was wondering, what kind of reception is he going to get from Esau? He feared that Esau would want to fight him, would want revenge. And that night, by the Jabbok River, just east of the Jordan, in fact, we'll be visiting the Jabbok River in a few days, Jacob encountered a stranger there. He thought this fellow was his brother Esau. The two men began to wrestle. Old Jake the snake went into action. He'd been wrestling all his life. His whole life had been a battle to trust God, to let God work out His will, His way. Little did Jacob realize that this stranger wasn't Esau. He was a messenger from the Lord. I believe that Jacob wrestled all night with Jesus. The heel catcher wrestled all night physically just as he had wrestled all his life spiritually. Jacob was putting up a pretty good fight when just before daybreak, the angel touched his thigh and dislocated his hip. Instantly, Jacob realized he'd been wrestling with God. Jacob grabbed God just as tightly as he had grabbed his brother's heel. He cried out to God and he asked for his blessing on his life and God granted it. That night, Jacob came to a startling realization The blessing he had always longed for was not achieved by his hand, by his plans, by his manipulations. The contentment and peace he had strived for wasn't found in beating the other guy, in winning, but in losing. God blessed Jacob when he surrendered. And it's interesting, Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life, the Bible tells us. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh, His crippled hip was a gift from God. It was a subtle reminder that his job, as well as ours, is to trust in God's strength, not our own. It's to trust in God's plan, not our own. The last incident from Jacob's life referred to by Hosea here in verse 6 was his experience at Bethel. After Jacob's wrestling match at the Jabbok, God told him to go to Bethel, the place where Jacob had first met God. The name Bethel means house of God. And at Bethel, Jacob does three things. He and his house put away their idols, they cleanse themselves, and they change their garments. And these same three things happen today when a person comes to Christ. We turn our backs on the false gods we once worshipped. We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and God clothes us in the Lord's righteousness. Jesus is our Bethel, our house of God. Jacob's running is now over. He's dwelling in the house of God. And at Bethel, he gets a new name. He's no longer called Jacob or heel catcher. But now God calls him Israel, which means governed by God. 
It's a wonderful thing when, you're, when you go from being a manipulator to being governed by God, surrendering to God's will, God's way, being governed by God. Hosea encourages Ephraim to learn from his forefather Jacob. Ephraim went from rebellion towards God to wrestling with God, or Jacob went from rebellion towards God to wrestling with God to resting in God. And here Hosea is hoping that the nation will do the same. The problem, though, is that the nation in Hosea's day was going the opposite direction. Like Jacob, they were wrestling with God and they didn't know it. They needed to surrender to His will. As a matter of fact, we all need to stop wrestling and start resting. And then verse 7 tells us, A cunning Canaanite, this is what he refers to Israel as, a cunning Canaanite, deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. Notice, God calls Israel, the Hebrews, a cunning Canaanite. That's a pretty good insult. The Canaanites, they were the pagans who lived in the land before God gave it to the Hebrews. Israel is acting like the blasphemous pagans that they what were there in the land before God gave it to them. And especially when it came to dirty business practices like rigged or unbalanced scales, they were cheating out their customers. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. But I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. The feast that Hosea refers to here is the Feast of Tabernacles. And as a matter of fact, to this day, Jews are supposed to spend a week outside their homes living under a tent or under a, a makeshift booth. It's a reminder of their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years and how God preserved and provided for them in the desert. And yet because of the haughtiness of the Hebrews in Hosea's day, and the confidence they had in their own wealth, God will force them to live again in tents, not just during an annual feast, but permanently, he says. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. And of course, we've been talking about this since Isaiah, from Isaiah to Hosea. We've noted how God communicates through the Hebrew prophets, sometimes through sermons, but sometimes through skits. Often God called on the prophets to act out the message He had given them through these dramatic displays. Isaiah walked naked. Ezekiel did a host of bizarre antics. Hosea was called to marry a prostitute. All these things were God's way of communicating His truth in a visual way. Verse 11 Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. From Gilead in the Golan, in the northern mountains, to Gilgal in the south, the land just above the Dead Sea, idolatry had permeated all the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of Hosea. This is why judgment was coming. Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse. And for a wife, he tended sheep. Again, a reference to Jacob. Jacob, the person, was basically a type of the people. The man Jacob was a type of the nation Israel. He says, by a prophet, 
The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he has preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him. God proved his faithfulness to his people by delivering them from Egypt and preserving them for over 700 years. The judgment that's about to come is being provoked by their own wickedness. And then chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. See, when Ephraim was humbled before God, he prospered. But when Ephraim rejected God for idols, when he offended God, he died to God. He became dead to God. Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver. According to their skill, all of it is the work of craftsmen. I mean, how foolish is it to worship the work of your own hands? Not just molded images, but a career, or a house, or a bank account, or fame, or reputation. You can make a foolish idol out of anything. As we're told in Psalm 100, verse 3, it is God who has made us and not we ourselves. This is what Jacob learned the hard way. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. According to the Ripley's Believe It or Not, the record for the longest kiss ever is held by a couple from Thailand. 58 hours, 35 minutes, and 58 seconds. You and your wife might want to try that when you get home. Their lips have to be locked. They have to never break contact. They they have to stand up the whole time, and they can't go to sleep. But Hosea would never question this record, or he would question this record for the longest kiss, for in God's estimation, Israel had kissed the golden calves for 200 years for the duration of their idolatry. Israel had paid homage, had given their love to these idols. We think of a kiss as a romantic gesture, but a kiss is often used as an act of homage or reverence or worship. Even today, Jews, they'll kiss the Torah scrolls as an act of reverence. Muslims kiss the Quran for the same reason. It really bugged me that the patriots kissed the Lombardi trophy after winning the Super Bowl. Perhaps some of them, for some of them, it may have been an act of worship, I don't know. In ancient times, a kiss was an expression of allegiance. This is why a person who approached the king, he would kiss his ring. When Judas kissed Jesus, it was a mock gesture of worship. A kiss does carry spiritual significance. Of course, all this talk of kissing reminds me of the boy who asks his girl for a kiss. She replied, sorry, but I have scruples. The boy said, that's okay, I've been vaccinated. Or the girl who asked her boyfriend, is it true that I'm the only girl you've ever kissed? He replied, yes, and the prettiest too. You got to think about that. Hey, Israel thought nothing of kissing the calf, the golden calves, their idols. It was was worshiping false gods. 
God had hoped that his people would be faithful to him. But as it turned out, Israel lacked spiritual scruples. And my question to us tonight is, what have you been kissing? What have you been kissing? Where have you been directing your affections? Have you been smooching with an idolatrous, wicked world? Or have you been reserving your kisses for Jesus? Psalm 2 verse 12 warns us, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. I hope you're reserving your affections for God's Son and our Savior. And then verse 3 tells us, Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Clouds, dew, chaff, smoke are all fleeting and transitory. Here one moment, gone the next, and such will be the immediate longevity of Israel. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. Now here's a great proof text for the deity of Jesus. If you want to prove to somebody that Jesus is God, here's a great place to go. Hosea 13 verse 4 declares that there is no Savior but Yahweh. Yet the New Testament identifies Jesus as the only Savior. You can't reconcile Hosea with the New Testament without admitting that Jesus and Yahweh are the same person. And then verse 5, I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore they forgot me. So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road. I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. In Hosea, he provides this poetic picture of this savage destruction that is coming upon Israel. And he uses these wild animals to symbolize nations and invading armies. I don't think it's a coincidence that the four animals here correspond to the animals that appear in Daniel 7. You remember in Daniel's vision, the lion and the bear and the leopard and the wild beast refer to four succeeding Gentile world-ruling empires, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And here we see the same four animals that are destroying Israel. Verse 9, O Israel, You are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes. I will give you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. What an incredible statement there. The eternal God has this broad, timeless perspective. He sees the end of the northern kingdom in the same sentence he talks about its advent or its beginning. You remember God wanted to be Israel's king? Yet His people demanded a king like the nations around them. It was all against God's better judgment. He knew what would happen if they had an earthly ruler, but He also knew they had to see for themselves. They had to learn the hard way. Now 400 years later, it's happened. Because of the 19 wicked rulers who followed Saul. He says, I gave you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. 
Ironically, today the Jews still want a man to rule over them. They're still looking for a Messiah. This is going to lead them to embrace the Antichrist. They'll see him as their Savior, but they too will learn the hard way. And then verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. God's judgment will be like birth pangs. They'll come suddenly and with great intensity, but it won't last long. He says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. For century, for centuries, Israel was ransomed by the blood of a sacrifice. But here God says, I will ransom them. I will redeem them. The day will come when God will ransom His people from the jaws of death and from the mouth of the grave. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57, Paul echoes this verse from Hosea. He explains how God will accomplish His redemption from death. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus transformed man's most bitter enemy, death, into a mere technicality. Today, the death we face, we know has been conquered by Jesus Christ. The grave no longer holds us. We share now in His resurrection. He says, though He is fruitful among His brethren... An east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child ripped open. And these were the horrible, horrible atrocities of war that occurred when the Assyrian army invaded Samaria in 722 B.C. Chapter 14. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. You see this? This is not just about wooden spoons. It's about warm hugs. Yes, God is going to discipline His people, but He also wants to forgive. And He's pleading with His people to repent and come to Him. And notice this vital verse. He says, come to me and take words with you. Come to me and bring words. Come to God and bring words with you. Understand, our confession plays an important role in our salvation. Romans 10 verse 10 reads, With the mouth, confession is made to salvation. You remember Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in the heart comes out of the mouth. 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was once speaking to a lady who made this statement about her friend. She said, He knows that he sinned, He just hasn't told it to God. The way she phrased it sounded strange to me at the time. You know, he hasn't told it to God. But this is exactly what Hosea is saying. You've got to tell it to God. 
When you come to God to repent and turn to Him, make sure you bring words with you. You've got to confess it. You've got to communicate to God. He says, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. And too often, this is the missing element in today's presentation of the gospel. You know, we encourage people to embrace Jesus, but we don't make it clear that you can't just add Jesus to your long list of other gods. Jesus demands not only that you be first, but that he be not only that he be first, but that he be only. There should be nothing else in my life that rivals my love for Jesus Christ, my loyalty to Jesus Christ. You know, in Paul's day, he knew that he was speaking to a polytheistic world. And unless he was careful, folks might get the impression that if they came to Jesus, they could just add him to their long list of other gods, the pantheon of Greek gods that they served. This is why he said to the Thessalonians that they turned from God to they turned to God from idols. It's not enough to turn to God. We also need to turn from idols. You remember 1 John 5, verse 21 is a New Testament command. It says, little children, keep yourself from idols. And there are idols today. You know that. All kinds of idols, materialism, all kinds of different things can become our idols. Verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. What an amazing thing. God's anger has turned away. It's been fierce. It's been strong. But there comes a time when it turns away. It was Charles Spurgeon who used to say, God soon turns from His wrath, but He never turns from His love. From time to time, God is forced to judge our sin. He uses the wooden spoon, but He always follows it up with the warmest hug. Psalm 30 verse 5 says it best, For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I'm sure we know backsliding is painful. Often you don't even feel the splinters in life until you slide backwards. Yet God heals our backslidings. He loves us freely with no strings attached. He wants to put away His anger. He says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen His roots like Lebanon. Cedars from Lebanon were known throughout the ancient world. His branches shall spread, His beauty shall be like an olive tree, and His fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under His shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. God will be like a sprawling cedar tree, a shelter for His people. These are wonderful verses here. Look at all that God promises His people. He'll be a refreshment like the morning dew to His people. He'll provide them growth. They'll lengthen their roots and healing. They'll sprout olives and influence. They'll give off a sweet fragrance. And like amber waves of grain, His people will bring glory and honor to God. They'll also be known for their fruitfulness like a vine and their joy like a wine. Here's how you heal a nation's backsliding. By giving them refreshment and growth and healing and influence, and glory and honor, and fruitfulness and joy. And God loves us freely. It costs us nothing but the price of our repentance. 
An interesting statement is made in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. There we're told, It happened on a certain day as Jesus was teaching that the power of the Lord was present to heal. Isn't that interesting? It happened on a certain day that the power of the Lord was present to heal. It just happened that God was present that day to heal. And it could be tonight is one of those days. As I'm teaching, perhaps the presence of the Lord, maybe the power of the Lord is here tonight to heal. This is God's desire for us. This is God's love for us. Refreshment and growth and influence and fruitfulness and joy. These are the things He wants to use to heal our backsliding. God is here. Perhaps He's in the mood to heal tonight. He wants to heal our backslidings. If we repent, if we turn from our idols and turn to Him. Verse 8, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard and observed Him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. And God is looking forward to this day. In both the history of Israel and in our lives, when we've heard, when we've observed God's ways, and His fruit is found in us. Hosea closes, Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. And there we have the prophecy of Hosea. 